2: I
3: Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with author and professor of literature, Robert Tyndall, about his medicine path that has taken him to the depths of the Amazon jungle, the deserts of Southwest America, and into a deep study of Western mythology. In this conversation, we touch on aspects of the hero's journey as it was outlined by Joseph Campbell in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces and it caused me to reflect on my own healing journey with yoga and plant medicines over the past decade. So I think I'll be recording a solo podcast that goes into some more detail about the hero's journey and share some of my own experiences. I think the hero's journey monomyth is a really useful framework to help us understand and mark certain passages in our life and It perhaps inspires us to not only embark on a transformative journey, but to return and integrate what we learn into a life of service to the greater good. So please look out for that in the next day or two. If you value these kind of conversations and would like to show your support, there are a few ways that you can help. And the simplest is to subscribe and leave a positive review on iTunes, which will help other people find the podcast. You could also share it with people on your social network, and another way is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching. Membership starts at just $5 a month and supporters gain access to dozens of yoga practice resources that I've been developing over the past few years. Everything I've ever created is there. And there are hours of vinyasa yoga sequences, breathwork practices, chanting, and guided meditations to help you develop a life-supporting and life-enriching home practice. Another way to show your support is to make a one-time donation to the podcast. And you can do that at paypal.me forward slash I want to give a special shout out to Nelson, who sent in a very generous donation, and a special thank you to everyone that's been reaching out to me on social media, sending me emails with your comments and feedback and suggestions for guests. I really do appreciate it, and I love hearing from you guys. So, with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this amazing conversation I had with Robert Tyndall on the medicine path. So I'm here with Robert Tyndall, who is a writer, father, classical guitarist, longtime practitioner of Zen Buddhism, and an inveterate traveler whose work explores the crossing of frontiers into other cultures, time depths, and states of consciousness. He's the author of three books on shamanism and indigenous lifeways, The Jaguar that Roams the Mind, The Shamanic Odyssey, Homer, Tolkien, and the Visionary Experience, and his latest book, Sacred Soil, Biochar, and the Regeneration of the Earth, along with numerous articles on themes such as pilgrimage along the Camino to Santiago, the Medieval Quest, and the indigenous prophetic and healing traditions of the Americas. Robert now works as a professor of literature, a leader of writing workshops, and a meditation instructor. He divides his time between the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, Mendocino, and the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, thanks a lot, and welcome to the podcast, Robert.
0: Thank you for inviting me,
3: Brian. So I've been reading your book, The Shamanic Odyssey, and I was wondering if we could just start introducing yourself with a bit of background into how you came to study the shamanic practices and Western mythology that you've been writing about for over a decade now.
0: Sure. Um, Well, when I was a boy, um, as I mentioned in uh, The Jaguar That Roams the Mind at a certain point, I um, was uh, left in a children's shelter when I was nine and grew up pretty much on the streets of the Bay Area with some stints with my family interspersed. And um, during that time, I had some uh, remarkable uh, um, interventions into my path by um, uh, mushrooms, uh, psilocybin mushrooms and also LSD. Uh, I've never written about this But now that Michael Pollan's come out with How to Change Your Mind, it feels like everything's starting to go mainstream. So I kind of feel like I can actually uh, fess up to this. And um, what happened based on those experiences was I, I had such a profound healing opening to mind and the nature of consciousness that um, I ended up living in a Zendo when I was 19 years old and beginning to do Buddhist training, which I practiced with utter sincerity for um, many years. And I had thought that the um, plant medicines and, of course, you know, that molecule LSD were um, things that had set me on the path, but that I no longer was called to utilize them, but at one point I was journeying through Mexico, out in the territory of the uh, Huichol people, in um, outside of uh, Real de Catorce in San Luis Potosi, and a friend of mine suggested that we go out and harvest peyote and eat it, and it struck me as a good idea. Uh, And that led to this huge uh, adventure out in uh, the desert in a pretty wild west kind of territory. And that night, sitting beneath the stars, having um, eaten the peyote, it was as if I'd done a week-long session. Like the scales were just falling from my eyes as the night progressed. And in the morning... I felt completely attuned to the chaparral, like the song of the coyote was just ringing through me. And I I walked out of that saying, you know, there really is something to these medicines. It's um, that uh, a Buddhist practice and work with plant medicines like peyote, ayahuasca, um, mushrooms, or um, wachuma can actually be synergistic. Those thoughts weren't fully formulated at the time, of course, but, you know, I was beginning to get clued in. And um, when I completed my master's degree in literature, I wrote on a beautiful poem from the Middle Ages called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's a lovely quest narrative, and it's remarkably profound. And at the end of it, you know, I was kind of like, I'd gotten all clued into these quests, uh, the psychology of the quest, um, the spiritual dimensions of it. And, um, along came ayahuasca. And for me, when I first drank the medicine, it was a revelation of a whole unknown world. Um, both in the sense of its healing potential, but also in the culture of it and also in the ontology of it. If you want to use that word, it was as if I had encountered a kind of um, daemon, a a kind of angel, something that had sentience in and of itself that um, touched my life in a way that was profound and one thing began to lead to another. And the next thing I knew, I was uh, not following an academic path any further, but instead was living in the heart of the rainforest with uh, my dear friend, Susanna Bustos, um, apprenticing with an in Shaman. And I assure you, I hadn't head down, headed down south with the intention to apprentice. <laughs> it's um. Uh, it's almost a scourge these days. Everybody seems to want to be an apprentice of somebody or another, but that wasn't on the cultural map at, at that time. It was um, uh, that was just what sort of arose out of really trying to understand the sort of paradigm-breaking miracle gift. Of of these plant medicines, you know, that have been with us for so long, but we seem to have just lost track of them. Well,
3: definitely, that was kind um, of
0: how everything. Yeah, that's how. Yeah.
3: Yeah, interesting. Um, Yeah, when you speak about your apprenticeship, I think it's definitely something that people are looking for more and more, and I think it speaks to a lack of initiation in our own uh, Western culture. Would you agree with that? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is something I was actually going to ask you about later on, but in the last chapter of the Shamanic Odyssey, you propose that addiction is a kind of failed initiation attempt. And it's an idea that really resonates with my own experience of substance misuse in the past, looking back on it, you know, what was I trying to get to through that? Uh, substance abuse. And I wondered if you could expand on that for us now.
0: I don't think there's a lot to it that others haven't said pretty well. Um, I think it's the deep craving for transcendence, you know? Um, My, um, my Zen teacher, my first Zen teacher, Robert Aitken, used to comment about the, our, our kind of naive attempt to suppress the ego and and kind of crush it, you know, and and how spiritual disciplines were actually disapproving of the ego. But he said, you need a strong ego in order to be able to abandon it. Hmm. And that's that was pretty good insight uh, of the Roshi's. Um, and I think that. In my own case, because uh, I've had a long battle with uh, substances myself, um, the, um, the embrace of alcohol or opiates or video games or pornography or you name it, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's a way for us to get the ersatz transcendence you know, the counterfeit one where we momentarily can leave our itchy, agitated, <laughs> you know, neurotic self and um, have a moment of transcendence. But of course, we know the costs accrue with that over time. And um, the uh, spiritual disciplines, Buddhism... Any tradition of prayer and also, of course, shamanic practices require of their practitioners a, a unusually high level of discipline and renunciation in order to be able to be strong enough to let go. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what we see, as I argue in the book with Odysseus tied to the mast as he's listening to the sirens. None of his men have the capacity to do that because if they heard them, they would leap off the ship and swim to the shore of the island and die there, uh, caught in the tractor beam of the sirens' addictive song. But Odysseus is able to listen and pass on and not be haunted by it, and he's able to learn from it. He's able to hear those voices and learn, Hmm. um, and accrue power. If if you take you know the interpretation of of many um, anthropological studies of shamanism across the world, you know he's um, developing himself. But the, the the his men don't have that strength within them to be able to abandon themselves. And come back again, intact.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that in that story, Odysseus also needed to be tied to the mast as a kind of security measure, right?
0: Yeah, he was going totally out there and he knew it. Mm-hmm. And and Circe instructed him in how to do it as well. She's perfectly clear with her instructions. If, if you want to listen, she says, this is what you do.
3: So I wonder if you could just finish drawing the parallel to something like a plant medicine ceremony.
0: Well. Um,
3: like the idea, the idea that gamma, to really let go and to go into that altered state uh, and having the security that you can find your way back, like what's required.
0: Well, I think it. You know, one thing that occurs to me is it depends on the plant. You know, uh, on the context. I mean, obviously, Odysseus really carefully creates the context. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and you know, in in um, ayahuasca ceremonies that are appropriately conducted. There's a very strong container um, that of prayer intention um, and you know the other elements that are transmitted through lineages that um, are involved in in creating a um uh, a, a kind of container where someone can truly let go
1: mm-hmm
0: And can, um, yeah, can listen to the song of the plant medicine. Now, you know, it's important to distinguish, and certainly the Greeks did this, between rapturous song that liberates at the source of life and song that binds and enslaves and addicts, that enthralls people. Mm -hmm. The Odyssey is perfectly clear about the difference between the two and ayahuasca of course can be used either way um there are there are very popular shamans right now with many western followers in peru uh, who often visit the united states who use enthralling songs and do damage to people they they work both ends of the street Mm -hmm. um and there are other shamans that um, stick, prim- that as far as I know, stick entirely to the uh, life, the enrapturing, life-giving song through the ayahuasca. And those are the ones that I work with.
3: Mm-hmm. Like both have the ability to enchant, but uh, it depends on where they're at in their own development. Um what they're
0: no, not necessarily. Hmm. Um there are, for instance, in the Native American church as well, there are lineages where people are trained in brujaria. they're hmm. trained in, in the witchcraft and the ability to do damage, so they can help people that have had that happen to them. Uh ah. mm-hmm. yeah, so it's kind of studying the dark arts in order to, you know, blah blah blah. Interesting. Um mm-hmm. So it can be part of the training. The question is do the shamans have the type of character where they won't abuse the knowledge? It's kind of like knowing how to use a nuclear how to design a nuclear weapon but choosing to not do it.
3: Yeah, or it, creating that, that might be a,
0: a bad metaphor but you get the idea.
3: Yeah, because even if the nuclear weapons used for defense everybody loses still.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you
3: when you're speaking about um, Odysseus it uh, it triggered something in me about my... So I started to work with ayahuasca in the Santo Daime Church, and it, it taught me a lot about centering myself and finding my way back from the enchantment. And one of the things that uh, came to mind is the image of Odysseus tied to that mask pole, which could be seen as a kind of tree of life. <clears throat> and... Mm-hmm. It, in the central dime church the the works center around a central altar, which has that same connection between Earth and heaven in the form of a crucero and I, I found it really helpful to have that when uh, when things started to get quite rocky and I felt that I was uh, losing my center, I could always bring myself back to that central Uh, crucero or or mast in order to recenter myself and and stay in the work so i think it's a really effective uh container slash uh i don't know prop that was really helpful to uh to not get lost Mm -hmm. in it
0: yeah i mean it evokes um you know into the the mythic here it Definitely, you know, the image shares with Christ on the cross and uh, Odin hanging on the world tree mm-hmm. as well to gain the ability to uh, understand the runes.
3: Yeah, right. And it's kind of that ability to have a foot in both worlds. Yeah. Through that central axis. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that you speak about in the Shamanic Odyssey, which I thought was a very intriguing idea, is the idea of returning to the native mind. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the native mind.
0: Well, you know, that's my great prayer for the future of the earth. Um, We've had 500 years of, of Cartesian alienation from um this life around us uh with this it's a purely metaphysical idea that there's a subject and object division in our experience and and that there's a thinking self a race called jetans, somewhere in my pineal gland and um the rest of the world is mechanical and dead um And it's a very sad metaphysics. It's depressing. It's, you know, who wants to live in a world with with a kind of operating manual like that? The joy is leached out that way. Um, And and, and also, I think, you know, kinds of knowledge are lost that way too. And uh, the last book that I wrote, Sacred Soil, was looking at how the Amazonian peoples of the rainforest pre-Columbian are the only ones that left their environment from from where they had sprung, the the deep rainforest, actually more fertile, more biodiverse, with its soils and waters healthier and more thriving than when they arrive. This is completely different than the course that uh, Western civilizations have taken. And I think that, that um, this is not to say that our ancestors in, in the Mediterranean were, um, didn't also have an animistic perception of the world as well. But I think that with Amazonian peoples, we can see that they develop very powerful technologies based upon that what um, Frederick Apfel-Marglin calls interaction with the cosmos. It's not like interaction where uh, you're connected with it, but it's interaction where mm-hmm. you are um mutually embedded in it where there is no agent being acted upon any longer you know we're into the world of, of um, synchronicity and um, quantum physics at that point
3: mm-hmm. what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing yes which I, yes, think, I, I think points to the kind of a reciprocal relationship that indigenous cultures have with their environment seeing the environment as a collection of other beings With whom they're completely interrelated and of course yeah. that's that's going to lead to them um, Utilizing the resources of the environment in a much different way than this the Western mind which sees us as being separate somehow more superior than the environment And, Uh Uh and then of course, uh, misusing those resources and just this like extraction mentality that we can just take, take, take without giving anything back. Yeah. So this is a part of returning to the native mind is this, um, uh, reconnection with our environment and seeing ourselves as an integral interdependent part of that environment.
0: Yeah. Okay, And I think we can integrate what we've learned in our, you know, 500 year Cartesian hiatus from sanity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did get Shakespeare out of it. I mean, it hasn't been all bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, you know, praise the antibiotic and. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's not that it's been all bad, but uh <laughs> you know, it's kinda like maybe it's time to kind of um wake up again and you know, learn what uh the you know, the wonderful things that have come with with this uh scientific objective view, you know, that is spliced and diced the cosmos in in such a revealing way. I mean, we do now have Darwinian theory, which rocks. It's it's amazing stuff. We've but I also suspect that that indigenous people pretty much knew everything that we have now staked out scientifically. I, I think they probably I, I don't think we should be complimenting ourselves and patting ourselves on the back too much.
3: Yeah, I agree. Um, but I was thinking that perhaps it was like a requirement of the Western mind to separate itself from the environment in order to study it in the way that science dictates. And okay, it so yeah, mm-hmm. and, and so that's great. We've learned a lot of really amazing things. We've uh, gained uh-huh. uh, modern medicine, which can be incredibly helpful, and all those things. But yeah, maybe it's time to re merge with the environment. Um, like you said, yeah,
0: yeah, inter- let's integrate it.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's the
0: whole argument for the native mind. That's, mm-hmm. that's it in a nutshell. Yeah.
3: Yeah, great. So it's been like an amazing period of uh, exploration and learning. And so now it's time to reintegrate so that we can work in a more positive way with our environment and help to heal what we've done in the past 500 years or so.
0: It seems it, yeah um, extinction comes to the lips really quick now um but um i'm I'm not certain that the technological juggernaut on its present setting is going to take our planet safely into uh the future
3: hmm. yeah. Well, as, as we're talking, I'm thinking about the hero's journey as an underlying framework for uh, the different myths of the world. And is it possible that we're now at this critical juncture point of going into the darkness of the cave and meeting the dragon, the dragon being the reality of our situation?
0: Um well, how long do we have to discuss the hero's journey? It's a, it's a big topic.
3: Well, let's get into it because um, okay. as, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, when I was in the Amazon last year working at the Temple of the Way of Light, a friend of mine who is visiting there, who's a student of uh, depth psychology and mythology, he gave a, a workshop on the hero's mm-hmm. journey and he mapped it out for people with the suggestion that they could use that as a way to understand their own shamanic odyssey there in the jungle or over the course of their life, if they're involved in a more long-term spiritual practice. And and I thought it was like just really perfect actually as a way to uh, reflect on the experiences in your own healing path. I definitely resonated with it and I, kind of came away from that thinking that I actually had a few different of those cycles, the hero's journey cycle. Um, and so I'd love to do yeah. it actually, because I think it uh, can be really helpful mm-hmm. for people to integrate mm-hmm. and understand their plant medicine work or their mm-hmm. spiritual, spiritual practice.
0: Okay. Um, well, I think the first thing maybe to do is to remember its origin. It, it comes from Joseph Campbell. Um, and the mythologist created it before he was something of a cultural icon. Uh, I'm pretty sure his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, was published in 47. And, you know, it was published by Bollington Press. And, you know, it's a thick tome. It's, um, it's a really ponderous, interesting work. And, um, it, I think that, you know, it, it circulated, but it didn't really start to come into more general awareness until, um, Frank Herbert based his Dune trilogy upon it. Hmm. And, you know, Herbert's Dune is brilliant. It's an amazing work of science fiction and he deliberately utilized the model in describing the career of Paul Atreides, but you will note that it is a tragedy because for Herbert, the hero's journey, he was living under um, uh, the administration of John F. Kennedy, which and he saw Kennedy as being very dangerous, interestingly.
1: Hmm.
0: And um, for Herbert, heroes... Paths inevitably turned into tragedy. That was his view. Um, But of course, you know, for myself, um, my generation got it through Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first went to that film, I was growing up in Reagan era California, where every older male seemed corrupt and everybody seemed to be chasing money. And um, it it just seemed like the meaning had been um, uh, sucked out of the world. And then we go to this film. I'm 11 or something. And here's this huge like cosmic battle with this metaphysical underpinning being played out in such a glorious way. And and my little 11-year-old heart just pounded with joy. It was like, you know, it was just like, yes, I'm ready to go to space. Let's hit it. You know, I, 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 you know awesome. Here's a meaningful world. And, of course, when I read Tolkien, I also got that, too. You know, mm-hmm. Particularly, here are older men that mm-hmm. behave as nurturing, and also they're strong. And they're connected with greater powers and they're able to steward in a profoundly responsible way. We, you know, that wasn't around much in my childhood. And I'm afraid it's not around much these days for kids that are coming up either. Yeah. Um, so these are really, you know, these mythic figures are extremely meaningful. And, you know, since then, um, the hero's journey is now taught as a standard screenwriting formula. And so um, at this point, there's not much use going to see most movies because they're just variations on that same theme of the call to adventure and meeting the mentor and crossing the threshold. And you can pretty much time out how the films are going to go based on what stage you are in it. Um, So in a way the hero's adventure has sucked the creativity out of our storytelling these days. Hmm. Um, And the other thing that Campbell was very clear about is it's, it's a myth just for that stage of psychological development that leads from adolescence to the beginning of adulthood where um, a young woman or man has a strong psychological center after making that journey. So it's an initiatory ordeal that we're all called on to do in order to like have our center of gravity and our ego, you know, that strong ego that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. But notice it doesn't really have, It's not about the later stages of life of that profound renunciation. It it doesn't get there. Hmm.
3: Well, I think um, many of us, because we lacked a real initiation experience in our youth, end up embarking on that journey somewhere around the midlife.
0: That's my cat.
3: (laughs) That's your cat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. She's old, and she likes to express her feeling about things sometimes. Um, so, um, what do you think um, about that? That, I,
3: that idea of the
0: delayed initiatory yeah. experience? I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. When, when I looked at the Jaguar after I um, came back from the jungle, I was introduced to the theory, and I went and I looked at. The jaguar that roams the mind, and I went, Oh, wow, look at that. Um, it actually tends to follow the stages. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. But um, I've come to sort of like, you know, expand the idea of the adventure beyond the hero's adventure, you know, it, because um, I'm kind of tired of heroes and I'm kind of tired of hero worship. I, I think it's a dud. Mm. And um, uh, Ian Baker wrote something quite marvelous. Um, he talks about how Tibetan tradition speaks of ka share, lam ker which is whatever arises, carry it to the path. Hmm. It's the Buddhist injunction to abandon preferences and integrate all experience. Mm-hmm. beyond accepting and rejecting like ramdas grist, grist for the mill right yes yeah. so without that dynamic openness to adventure which comes from the latin ad venio, whatever comes hmm. tibetans say pilgrimage devolves into ordinary travel and the hidden lands both physical and metaphysical will never open Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the fundamental insight of um, Campbell, you know, um, into human psychology and myth. Um, It's the um, pilgrimage where, you know, when we work with plant medicines, we are embarking on a pilgrimage Mm -hmm. when we enter into that ceremonial space. And, um, you know, the great work in that is the um, whatever arises, carry it to the path. You know, the, the, this very moment is the teaching of the Dharma.
3: Mm-hmm. So how does that differ from that kind of classical model of the hero's journey?
0: Um, I think the hero's journey won't happen without that fundamental stance.
3: So if we're only focused on, say, uh, gaining positive insights or power, then that could shut us off from a whole other spectrum of learning about ourselves.
0: Yeah, or if we're focused on having a hero's journey.
3: Yeah, so what's the alternative to the hero's journey? It's like the everyman's journey?
0: Well, in the Middle Ages, it actually was. Um, there were two um, kind of um, narrative genres that were quite popular. You know, we all know the knightly quest, right? And that's classic hero's adventure stuff where Sir Gawain uh, receives a challenge from the Green Knight to exchange the, you know, to play the uh, beheading game. So first he cuts off the Green Knight's head, and the Green Knight picks up the head and uh, says to Gawain, "I'll see you in a year um, come and find me and Sir Gawain has to depart upon a um, a quest into the forests into the wild where he undergoes all those ordeals that Campbell talks about and eventually. Um, dies and is resurrected. But interestingly, in this medieval poem, he's not resurrected completely. He can't totally let go of his ego, his heroic self-image, in order to truly die into um, the death that he's been offered to his chivalric self. He won't do it. So really curious psychological insight on the part of this medieval poet. Um, But, you know, the whole there and back again thing that Tolkien also took off with, with The Hobbit. You know, The Hobbit works really well with Campbell's theory. The Lord of the Rings, not so well, but The Hobbit works beautifully with it. And um, um, so that genre was alive and well in the Middle Ages, which is the nightly quest. The other is actually the pilgrimage narrative. Pierce Plowman. Um, That was another kind of journey, but that was for commoners. Mm. Those who who weren't
3: mounted on horses. So what's the difference between a pilgrimage and a
0: hero's journey? I I think that both of them in the end um, uh, um, bring... Uh, the uh, the protagonist up to the experience of um, death and resurrection. So uh, there is that that's the kind of fundamental motif. And in that way, there there is no difference. The um, you know the culture, uh, what the narratives explore, uh there can be quite significant difference. I mean Pierce Plowman, uh you can hear the forces that led to the thirteen eighty five peasant revolt pretty strongly in that. Um, so um yeah different different cultures but uh a, a kind of similar psychological spiritual quest is, is going on in both. But then you know what what you're asking Brian is um can it work as a um, a guide for us in working with plant medicines? Mm-hmm. It seems.
3: Yeah, or you know, a spiritual practice like yoga or meditation. You know, something that does take you on a journey where you're discovering things about yourself. You're dealing with the darker aspects of yourself. And hopefully, gaining some deep insight and in that a transformation, and then following that into a you know a reemergence into your everyday life, bringing something back from that inner quest, uh, something that you can then share with your family and your community something of benefit
0: yeah, yeah, I totally think so, you know I, I think it's good to be comfortable um, with the map um, because, uh, you know, I've been doing ceremony for about 15 years now and um, it's always a journey into the unknown, into unknowing actually. And the, the ability to hold that not knowing um, but. It's called negative capacity Hmm. in ceremony can be really beneficial. Um, Yeah. And, uh, you know, to to know, to to really have that level of faith that um, uh, even if you meet shadow content that is just shredding you, that um, the ordeal has an inner logic, an inner reason, which leads to a reward once it's undergone.
3: Mm-hmm. And so understanding that that process could maybe give you a kind of confidence to really let go. And going back to like what you're talking about with the having a, a strong stabilized sense of self um, is kind of that mast pole that you can tether yourself to as you really let go into that potential that uh, negative potential or, or what I would well, say you know uh, just going in mm-hmm. uh, as open as possible mm-hmm.
0: right I would um, my years of um, working with the Native American church uh, up here in the north um, has really refined my view um, that that pole that we're tied to is our prayer. Mm. I, feel, and, that um, be, there's I this, feel that to be true as well. That's something that
3: um, yeah. I would often find myself spontaneously doing in, in difficult ceremony is these spontaneous prayers, and they would become like mantras to help. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hold my center yeah. and, and stay there.
0: <laughs> it's and you know the the church um, is really a uh, wonderful uh, place to learn about um, the, the the deeper practice of prayer. You know Juan Flores, uh, my teacher in the Ashin Incan tradition always said, you know, at My aquí, somos ayahuasqueros oracionistas, right? we mm. we pray, right? We're we're ayahuasqueros, but we're also people of prayer. And um but what the um what the native american church community practices is much more collective prayer. You know, so if someone sponsors a meeting, they come in with a specific prayer. Mm. And they share it, you know, and a smoke is taken and um, uh, and, you know, the fire, the sacred fire is is kept with that intention. And and it works deep, you know, and and this is why profound healings can sometimes happen in these uh, in these teepee meetings or in these sweat lodges. Um, And they they have a wonderful saying, which is to get behind your prayer. You know, um, and when I first came back from my initial training in the Amazon, I was I was kind of flojo about that. I was a little loose um, and I was still a bit of a cosmonaut or sorry, a (laughs) psychonaut in the sense that, you know, whatever came, man, you know, let's let's do it. Let's enjoy it. But then I began learning about how like our prayer is like the rudder of our ship. Mm hmm. In ceremony, and that, you know, the more clearly we stand or sit behind our prayer, um, the more our inner work and, and the way that our um, opportunities in life, you know, the, the, you know, the, what we're praying to shape the world into comes to be manifest. And so I would, you know, I would, if we're going to give a symbolic kind of meaning to the, um, uh, that world tree that we're bound to when we do ceremony, I would, I would say for me now, it's our prayer.
3: Yeah, I've really come to that myself as well. And when I'm talking with people who are going to go into ceremony, I try to speak about it in a way that. Doesn't put, I mean, it puts emphasis on that prayer, but also, like, if you're able to still allow some openness too. So, I think sometimes going in with a very strong intention can cut you off from the like spontaneous openings and insights that can happen in those spaces. So, for me, it's like finding that balance, like using that prayer enough to stay on course, but also. Trying to at the same time be open to unexpected things to come in. Absolutely, yeah, and it's a, I mean it's just something yeah. that you you have to practice. It's like holding a pair mm-hmm. of, pair of opposites, right? Like direction and yeah. openness. Yeah, That's,
0: it's the negative capacity. Mm-hmm. We don't know, you know. There there's, there comes a point in the heart of ceremony so often, you know, we just don't know. Mm-hmm anything anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and we really have to, um, you know, the hero's journey can, can, um, certainly help us reconcile ourselves to that and, and be willing to undergo it.
3: Mm -hmm. Like you could go into the ceremony with a certain idea about the dragon that you need to face. But once you get in that cave and start feeling around and, you know, once the lights come on, you may find yourself confronted
0: with a completely different animal in there. <laughs> right. Right. And, and then the funny thing is, is you'll find out it's the dragon, like three weeks later. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it just didn't look how you expected it to look. Maybe.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, I remember one time I was at my Auntie Yaku when I was first there and the insect, situation was insane at that time. And they had a kitchen just about completely overwhelmed by insect life. It had just taken over whole areas and the cooks had just given up on it and abandoned it to the hives. It was something else. Hmm. And I, um, had to go in to get a little bit of food after ceremony was done and we're in the deep Amazonian night. And I walk up to this dark portal into this unknown realm, you know, filled with creepy, crawly, (laughs) scary stuff, you know? And I I, kind of like take a breath (laughs) and I look in and suddenly I feel totally safe, like, And I hit the light, and there's this little mouse sitting on the edge of the pot that I'm going to get the food out of. And it looks up at me like, "Eh, (laughs) (laughs) You're the dragon. (laughs) It's a monster. (laughs) (laughs) You you never know what you're going to find in the cave. Uh,
3: Maybe that dragon will be as frightened of you as you are of it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. I guess, uh, I'm not still completely clear on why you're done with the idea of the hero.
0: Um,
3: is it a matter of ego inflation? Yeah. 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 I, I kind of feel that. Um, yeah, I think I understand where you're getting to with that.
0: And I think it's age appropriate. You know, I'm 52 now and, um, Heroes are boring. <laughs> Journeys are interesting. Journeys are interesting. Heroes are boring. Yeah, and I guess For, from, from... when you're when you're when you're in your twenties, you need that, and it's yeah. a good symbol to hold yourself together, especially if you come from a background that's you know many of us working with plant medicines come out of um, you know we were sensitive people that grew up in really dysfunctional families have suffered from addiction, have been abused in various ways. You know, it's, um, it is a hero's journey. Yeah. Truly. And I, th- I think ex-
3: exactly. I can relate to that. And at some point in my life, I needed to feel that I had some personal power. And so like in some of those first Santo Daime ceremonies, I remember channeling the energy of, saint michael and feeling myself Uh really big and strong and you know wielding this sword and able to protect those around me you know (laughs) whether Uh they needed it or not but it was this kind of like healthy Uh ego inflation that i probably needed Uh in order to come into Uh my, my own personal power and you know and then that was like beautifully followed up by a number of kind of um uh, humiliating experiences you know ones that like
0: <laughs> yeah knock,
3: knock me down <laughs> and uh yeah. caused me to yeah. re- remember that i'm not the all-powerful
0: <laughs> yeah and you know god save us from ego and um uh you know as Susanna um points out really well uh the um that experience of intimacy with the plants uh can be such that we can get a sense of being the chosen ones or something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so intimate. It's so wonderful. It's so revelatory that there's always the danger that we're going to inflate. Um, And, um, you know, there's a lot of abuse going on in the world of medicine right now. There are a lot of casualties coming out of it right now. And, you know, um, I I think we really have to up our awareness of uh, the the danger of hero worship, too. You know, people get entranced by shamans down in South America, and some of them are not worthy of being projected upon in that way. Mm -hmm. Some will be able to, you know, will handle it. I mean, I projected on Juan as, as a father figure big time. And I still love the man. You know, he's he's followed through in all kinds of ways down through the years. Um, I'm so grateful that I have a maestro in this tradition. But not all of them are worthy of this. There are a lot of CADs right now serving medicine. And with our, you know, kind of, you know, us babes in the woods, people have to be really careful. Yeah. It's something I've been, that's I've been, projecting the hero onto someone outside of you. Mm-hmm.
3: But also having that uh, of sense of one's own self being the hero, and this is something that's been coming up for me very recently. Actually, um, I've been seeing a lot of younger men, you know, in their early thirties, who have gotten some plant medicine experience under their belt. And maybe have even done some training, um I think really eager to become leaders and teachers in that area, yeah and I think it's a really kind of dangerous path for a young man to set out on uh, without an ongoing guidance of an elder and uh I yeah. think it
0: feels to me that sometimes that it's it's premature, yes. And here again is the delusion of intimacy with the plant. And so some people will actually think that um, I don't need a um, an older guide or a mentor. I don't need years of training because, hey, the plant's my teacher. Mm-hmm. Incorrect. Incorrect. The plant is also just a mere back of our own mind it reflects our consciousness back to us and you know ayahuasca plays tricks
3: yeah well i think you're right in that it's a mirror and that if we go in wanting to see ourselves as a a shaman or someone that the plants are encouraging to become a shaman that's what it'll reflect back and and amplify oh
0: and behold yeah Mm. It's tricky. Now, if I could say um, the Native American church, I really respect their way of approaching this because um, people, there aren't really even, you know, is bandied about a lot now, and it's a very uncomfortable term for me um, because it's a kind of idea of a sort of exclusivity, a privileged um, role or position. And in the Native American church, you know, people... Um, train for years and years. You know, they learn how to work the fire. They, they, they know how to put up a teepee, right? They, they learn how to pray. They learn the songs. They learn how to tie the water drum. They, you know, learn how to carry cedar. They, you know, they learn how to catch rocks when it's coming into the, into the sweat lodge. And they learn how to clean wood for a meeting, you know, and, and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication. It's a lot of hours. And you do it in community. And so, you know, over the years of your participation, the community gets to know you, the spirits of the ancestors get to know you, the medicine gets to know you, the fire gets to know you. And, you know, um, one of my friends, my dear friends, received um, the transmission of the sweat lodge that has come down in our lineage because the roadman we worked with had a dream where he saw my friend leading ceremony. And so he very quietly gave it to him. And my friend had no intention at all of receiving this. He had no ambition. And so there's a way that when we're really well embedded in community, it takes off that competitive edge. You know, I sometimes feel like um, we who do the medicine from South America are as competitive and jealous as cats, and in that kind of way, we're, we're reflecting the whole world of vehicleismo where, I mean, you can barely get two shamans to sit down and treat one another decently in the same row. Hmm. There's, you know, there's a lot of witchcraft. There's, there's a lot of uh, competition. And uh, in ceremonies, they're very shaman-centric. So the community doesn't have that chance to, like, develop like a church,
3: Yeah, well, when you're speaking about the Native American Church, I saw a lot of parallels in the Santo Daime Church in terms of this kind of um, progression starting out as a, a guest, you know, an honored guest. You're sitting in the back and then as you gain more experience, you move closer to the places of power, close to the altar. And then you might graduate to becoming a guardian where you're very much in a service role. Uh, which I think is a really important stage of development, is to just totally be at service and uh, gaining experience in that role before you might even become considered uh, to lead a work. And it reminds me of this vision that I had in the jungle last year of a lion who doesn't go out and recruit his pride, but through his own um, strength and and calm ability to uh, hold it together, the pride is attracted to those qualities and starts to form around the lion without it being, like you said, ambitious uh, on the part of the lion. It's just like if you embody those qualities, your community will see Mm -hmm. that and and raise you up into the position of leader.
0: Mm -hmm. Or the, the spirits themselves will. You know, the spirits will let the community know that okay, you know, let okay. this guy handle fire. <laughs> you know, it just it just happens. Um and um that, you know, that again, you know, the um I I think for all of its um good qualities, the hero's journey can also suggest a kind of, you know, like it's sort of monadic. It's it's a it's the hardy individual ego, heroic self doing it mm. and accruing things you know i get my rewards and and so you know like when we are younger and certainly i had this um i wanted to be a this and a that and a that and another um i wanted to be a master of one thing or another uh depending on the stage i was going through when i was doing aikido i wanted to be a black belt you know <laughs> et cetera, right um and um that's the kind of shape that our experience tends to take in our twenties and maybe our thirties too. But it's, it's not, um, the, the kind of, um, psychological place that I I think leaders of medicine work are safest to come from. Um, it makes you vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It, It can be very easy to take a tragic fall you know, as the Greeks were very good at pointing out.
3: Yeah. Especially when people start to project certain qualities on you. Oh Um, yeah. And then you start believing it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think some of the issue is that like, especially with plant medicines is that you can be deluded by the plant medicine experience into believing whatever you want to believe about yourself. And the, you know, then the story goes, well, the plants told me that I'm that I'm ready to Mm -hmm. become a leader. And that's the highest Mm -hmm. authority, you know, mother ayahuasca herself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I mean, it's hard to, uh, I I don't know, it's hard to kind of attack (laughs) that position because how do you know what, what that person has been through? And I guess it's a matter of. No, if,
0: if I hear that, it's, it, it's it's not a foundation of any kind. Yeah. Any shaman, my own maestro, if he heard that, would simply laugh. He mm. think that was hilarious. It, really? it it has no cultural place whatsoever in any indigenous tradition.
3: Ah, uh, interesting. Because there yeah. there's an there's an awareness of that potential to uh, get a grandiose idea about yourself.
0: I suppose I don't even know i I just know it would be a completely foreign concept i Juan would just laugh and and um would send a person back to their dieta. <laughs> yeah you know because really, you know dieta so to work with the plants is so that we can become channels you know um we we can surrender to do the right thing at the right moment under the right kind of guidance, you know? Um, and if, if you even walk up and say the plant told me we've, we've already got a problem here. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the
3: things you're in the way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was thinking about is now that, um, that something like ayahuasca tourism has become big business for a lot of people native to a place like Peru is that mm-hmm. some of the the maestros or shamans that people will be visiting actually um have something to gain by creating more apprentices and empowering them to lead ceremonies because those those people are going to bring groups back to Peru they're going to be someone to ship ayahuasca to so even the you know I've heard someone oh. say well my my maestro in Peru of the ship tradition empowered me to lead yes. ceremonies in North America mm-hmm. and I'm like well what's his motive behind that you know oh. Empowering a 32-year-old guy with a few years' experience to lead ceremony.
0: There is um, one Shipibo shaman that um, I will leave unnamed um, who has developed a cult following. You'd think he was Amma. And it's very disturbing because a lot of the named apprentices of this fellow are are now showing up seeking help in therapeutic circles in the Bay Area.
3: Hmm. Is this... uh, um, Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have some friends who are involved with him up north in in Canada as well. And, um, you know, I saw as a bystander the kind of havoc that, that that wreaked on that particular community. So I'm familiar with what you're
0: talking about. And this is um, tricky to talk about. Um, I don't want to cast dispersions. There's in, in cult situations um, where the shaman becomes an object of sort of adoration by Westerners, where he's given a kind of exotic role, there's a lot of abuse that can occur. And we, in our work down in Peru, um, we arrived before the whole Ayahuasca tourism thing was booming. Um, we worked through a network at Takawasi, the, the center that utilizes the plant medicines to heal addiction. Mm-hmm. And they had a whole network of, you know, th- these are the legit people. Um, and, you know, part of what, what Westerners face is how do you know who's legitimate? mm mm-hmm. You know, um, how do you sort out the, the wolves from the sheep? You know, the wolves in sheep clothing. How do you recognize them? Yeah. And um, um, it's hard, you know. And, and there are books being published by um, students of that are extolling him. And if I read such a book and I didn't know anything about the world of vehitorismo and particularly Shipibo shamanism, I would be um, pretty entranced, mm. <laughs> you know? And Shipibo, Shipibo ikodos are marvelous, and they are intensely entrancing. I had a profound healing experience to one of them. You know, Shipibo people carry real medicine mm-hmm. as well, you know, but, you know, it's it's like... Is the shaman walking the path where they are practicing healing, or do they throw in brujeria when it's convenient for them to build their power base? Mm-hmm. How are you know what? How healthy is the community you're actually in? Are you you know like yeah? It,
3: no, do it's you hard
0: think... to sort out.
3: Yeah, do you think there's anything that we could actually do or does it all just come out in the wash eventually?
0: I don't have any solution because I feel like if I speak up, um, you know, I might be playing the same game as um, all all the other, you know, people working with medicine, which is to put down other people, uh, you know, and, and insult myself. Uh, yeah, it's 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 um I, I think that the best that people can do is um talk about their experiences, disclose what's going on. Um and um you know really uh have care.
3: Mm-hmm. Is that one of the functions of community is to Reflect back to people when they are becoming misguided or uh, when their egos getting inflated. I mean, is that one of the functions of doing this work in community of sangha?
0: Oh yeah, um, my my teachers will always accept correction. Hmm. Really? Oh yeah, and um, Juan. I've never quite had to correct Juan, although sometimes I wanted to pull my hair out over things that have happened at his center. Um, But um, he says quite clearly, I'm just a student of the plants. Mm -hmm. We're all learning together.
4: Hmm.
0: And that kind of humility also I get from my dad and, and mom in the Native American church as well. And I know I can always um, address any concern with them, and they operate on a um, on a model of full accountability and transparency. And on top of that, they operate on Dana, hmm. or I'm sorry, I guess this sounds Donna. In, yeah. in other words, they don't charge; they don't charge money. They uh, live on donations.
3: Yeah, I think all of those are really good signposts uh,
0: for finding. They are. And of course, some of us need to actually ask for a certain amount of donation and stuff. So I don't mean to suggest that's the criteria by which to judge somebody at all. Yeah, but, but especially. It, you know, it's an indication of a kind of attitude, a, a kind of way of being. Or, yeah, it puts
3: it out there right out front that mm-hmm. I'm I'm here to be of service for healing rather than making money like that question doesn't even enter into it it kind of shuts down that and it makes it very clear what they're there for um and then i think also the transparency and accountability are are huge things for any good leader to have especially in this day and age
0: yeah yes absolutely
3: yeah well i think that's a I mean, there's a lot more I could talk to you about about mythology and plant medicine, but I think for this conversation, that feels like a good place. It's a good
0: note to end on, isn't it? <laughs>
3: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We covered a lot. So, uh, how can people find out about your work and um, any retreats that you might be taking down to Peru, that kind of thing?
0: Um. Honestly, I'm laying pretty low these days. Um. But I do have a blog, roamingthemind.com. And uh, Susanna, my partner in this work, is taking down a women's group um, coming up in August. I I think that one is probably already set. Um, But um, uh, Susanna works in the Bay Area uh, utilizing uh, not the ayahuasca, but her... um, therapeutic methods that she got from Takawasi Center that she trained in there and so she often works with people on issues of integration Mm -hmm. Um, and Susanna can also be contacted through the blog and I'm just around uh if folks uh I'm kind of hankering to get back to the jungle and honestly if enough folks contacted me and said let's go I'd I'd certainly carve out the time to go back. I'm always, always up for medicine work and, and prayer.
3: Yeah, I'm kind yeah. of, itch- I'm itching to get back to, but um, <laughs> it's about like where to go. It's uh, been the question for me these days. So um, yeah, I'm interested to talk to you more actually about the center that you're involved with.
0: Happy to share more.
3: Yeah, great. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. I really do appreciate it. And uh, like I said, I love your books and I encourage people to search them out. I'll provide links on the show notes to your website and links to your books. And um, please uh, convince Susanna to come on the podcast with me. I'd love to talk with her about Icaros and the work that she's doing with women specifically. That sounds really interesting. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's great. Um, I will and I I want to really recognize your knowledgeability, Brian. Um it's really encouraging to do an interview with someone that kind of really knows what he's talking about and can ask such insightful questions and and I think you're doing a, a real service for the community. So I hope this really gets out there and, and that all your podcasts get out there.
3: Oh, thanks so much. I, I do appreciate yeah. hearing that. Yeah. Well, we'll, do our, we'll do our best to get these conversations out there because uh, I think they're really, really important. And um, as psychedelics, entheogens, plant medicines become more and more popular and sought after, I think these conversations mm-hmm. are absolutely crucial to um, allow people to investigate them in a really safe and grounded way. So thanks for your contribution. I love your perspectives. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Robert. Bye-bye now. Talk to you later.
4: Bye-bye.
3: Well, that was my conversation with Robert Tindall. I hope you enjoyed it. I know that I did and I got a lot out of it and it gave me a lot of food for thought. And so part of that will be in the upcoming solo podcast that I'll be releasing, expanding on some of the ideas around the hero's journey and sharing some of my own journey. In these podcasts, we've been covering a lot of subjects that I think are really important for people to consider and things to be aware of when you're embarking on your own medicine path. So I hope that you're getting something out of them, and I look forward to hearing your comments and feedback on this podcast and upcoming podcasts. So until next time, please be well. Be kind, take care of yourself and we'll see you down the medicine
4: path. De la laguna inima, ya ya remu, ni, ni ma, linda virgen se ni poderos na ni ma ora ya mo ya ni na na ni na na ni me dice nairo na si dai ra <risa> linda Virgen ni de la Laguna la Ahora ya muy muy ni nainainainainaini, medicina ro Para todos tus hijos aquí en la tierra Ini, Medicine yamo mu, ya, Deira rai, rai rai, 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 dai <laughs> <laughs>